0: inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. And today I think we have eight questions. Um, And they are, they're always great. You guys always have wonderful questions. Um, But they're kind of a lot of different topics. So let's just jump right in. Question number one says, Hi, Katie. In your experience, do your clients' eating disorder voices ever completely go away? Great question. For context, I used to have anorexia, but I am now weight restored. Although I consider myself much happier in a healthy body, more energy, better sleep, etc. I still find myself occupied with disordered thoughts surrounding food and body image. I don't engage in behaviors like I used to but I still feel all of them. I don't know if this makes sense or not, but it's almost like I emotionally have an eating disorder, but not a physical one anymore. I logically know that I wasn't happy in the depths of my eating disorder, but I constantly feel like I'm failing my eating disorder and I mourn my old body and past sense of control. I always feel like relapsing would be amazing. Is this normal? The short answer is yes, that's completely normal. <clears throat> um, there's a It's a process. So there, that's the, I think the tricky part about eating disorder treatment and recovery is that it's twofold, right? It's not just a mental health issue. And it's also not just a physical health issue. It's both. And so just being weight restored, just healing your physical body doesn't mean that your mental health has been healed. And that's why I always talk about in treatment, getting to the root of the root of this issue, meaning that we can't just treat the symptoms, right? The behaviors of the eating disorder. Because if we do, we end up kind of like with what you're dealing with here, where you still have a lot of the eating disorder thoughts. Essentially, your brain is still eating disorder, but your body isn't. And we, that doesn't really help us. That's like, we're we're halfway recovered. And I'm not trying to, uh, you know, talk down or invalidate any of your hard work. Because getting weight restored is a lot of hard work. And I want you to know that I acknowledge that. And I'm incredibly proud of how far you've come. Now is the time we have to do that internal and emotional work, meaning figuring out why our eating disorder was there. Because remember, eating disorders aren't just about vanity right? A lot of people want to say, oh, people just have eating disorders. They just should just eat more, right? Um, Or you know, if you're, you're eating too much, you should just stop eating so much. And it's like, it's not about the fucking food, you idiot. It's not about that. It's about what it numbs me out from. What am I so focused on either eating or not eating so much? So I want to be focused on that so much that I can't acknowledge something else. What's that something else? What's the other thing going on? Could it be trauma or abuse that I sustained in my past? Possibly. Could it be, um, you know, things that we might not consider traumas, but are traumas? Like, did I have to move a lot as a kid or as an adult? Uh, Am I going through a really bad breakup, a divorce? Am I getting bullied? Like, is something else happening? Am I trying to numb out with food, either too much food or not enough food? Once we consider that and we work to process that root cause, that's when the mental health component will catch up with our physical health. And know that it's also very common for those two, meaning the physical and mental recovery, to kind of teeter totter back and forth. This isn't like all of a sudden A to B, we're recovered. It's this like up and down, and we might slide back and we go forward, and it's okay. And they're going to kind of swip swap places as we get better at managing the physical stuff, right? You're really good at that right now. Then we we tap into that emotional stuff, then the physical urges can get stronger. We might re engage with those a little bit. That doesn't mean that you're not working on your recovery and that you're back a square one. It's just this process because, again, the eating disorder exists for a reason. And until we heal that reason, it's going to keep lingering in our thoughts. Does that make sense? I hope so. Now, there were lots of comments on this. And also, it's incredibly normal. I know I said that at the beginning, but I feel that it's important to say it again. This happens with 100% of my patients where we kind of go between feeling like we're doing well mentally and not physically or or vice versa. And this struggle to get rid of those thoughts is incredibly normal. And I also want to say that in that process, when we get farther along in our recovery, and we don't have those thoughts most days, it is also normal when things get super stressful or we have maybe a new trauma or something happens to us. It's very normal for those eating disorder thoughts to, oop they pop back up, but we know them for what they are. And it's not very difficult for us to be like, I'm not going to engage in those. But I just want everybody out there to know that even if you're fully recovered, those thoughts can pop up from time to time when we get overwhelmed and we're more vulnerable to them. Doesn't mean we're going to act on them, but it's okay that they happen. That's normal. It's almost like, you can compare it to any number of things. Like, even if my anxiety is better managed than it used to be, I can still feel anxious or have these anxious thoughts from time to time. And I'm like, oh, that's not helpful for me. Right. Or if um, I recovered from drug or alcohol addiction, I might have those thoughts, brief thoughts. They're like, oh, maybe I'll just have a couple drinks. It'll be fine. I'm like, no, Katie, that's not going to be helpful. Right. Those, that thought process is so ingrained in us that when things get really overwhelming, it is completely normal and okay for those thoughts to occur nothing's wrong with us. We're not like relapsing. The goal then is to use our tools. So we don't engage with those and to recognize, Hey, I don't really want to do that anymore, but that's interesting. That must mean that, you know, I need more support or maybe I should journal or do some of my old therapy homework or something like that. So I just wanted to put that out there as well. Now there were comments on this said. Additionally, can you talk about overshooting weight and how to deal with it when you're eating disorder voice always tries to make you restrict again? This is always interesting. Um, this is why it's really important that we work with a dietitian or a nutritionist, whatever you have available in your area, um, because it's going to be important that they work with us as we manage our, like, our, I don't want to call it a meal plan because I know not everybody likes that term, but for the lack of a different term let's just call it like a menu or a meal plan, right? They're going to help us manage that. And instead of focusing on the number, which I know your eating disorder wants to glom onto that number and be like, you know, trash talk you, I'm so fat and lazy, stupid, whatever it tries to tell you. Instead of focusing on that, let's focus on our menu and our meal plan and talk to your dietitian and your therapist about what's coming up for you, right? All the judgment, all the eating disorder voice getting louder, um, Because restriction isn't going to make it better. I know your eating disorder tells you, well, you're, you know, you're stupid fat and lazy and the only way to lose this weight is to do, is to not eat or to do X, Y, and Z but I'm here to tell you that that's not, it's essentially, it's what an eating disorder always does is it shape shifts. It tries to find a way to always fit itself into your life, even when you don't need it anymore. And so it can help to be like, thanks eating disorder for all the support you've given me over the years, but I don't really need you anymore. Right now, I'm going to be more intuitive. I'm going to let my body heal because I want everybody to know that in your process of recovery, your weight is going to fluctuate. As a human, our weight fluctuates. And Yes, that can be triggering. And yes, we can think like, oh my God, you know, this means X, Y, or Z about me. But I'm here to tell you that in your recovery process, stick to your plan, talk to your treatment team and ignore that fucking eating disorder voice because it only tells you lies because restricting is not going to make you feel better. We all know where that leads us. Just take a minute to remember how often it tells you to restrict and how it's never enough. You're never good enough. You're not doing it enough. You're not sick enough. You're not skinny enough. It doesn't, you know, just remember that. Eating disorders only lie, and it's never going to be enough. So trust your team. Talk to your, you know, dietitian, and let them help you with this. Okay. Now another comment on this is: Hi there, I'm not sure if my question is related enough, but I thought I'd ask it anyways. I am in a similar position: weight restored, medically stable, etc. But I also experience the cognitions of anorexia nervosa. I have been through a couple of rounds of treatment at a higher level of care, yet always seem to fall short of full recovery. I suppose I'm in what you would label as par- partial recovery. I'm slipping again. And I know this. However, like the person mentioned above, the voices never seem to lessen. Honestly, I'm tired of trying and I want to go back to my eating disorder. I want to lose weight. Just maybe not the same, not to the extreme as before. Again, eating disorder is lying to you. It's ne- it, it always says that and it always wants more than before. Despite this, I don't want to be done with therapy. I am miserable and depressed and therapy to some degree helps lessen this. And note for reference, my therapist is an eating disorder specialist, and this creates a a conflicting feeling as I do not want to lie and waste everyone's time. You're not wasting everyone's time. Don't worry. Yet, I really don't want to be referred out. I'm not sure if my desire to continue therapy is solely attachment-based, but I'm curious nevertheless. As an eating disorder specialist yourself, how would you navigate a client's request to solely work on depression and not attending to the eating disorder, at least initially? Has a client ever told you that they don't want to get better? Would you honor this request, perhaps working out a negotiation, or would you refer them out despite them admitting therapy is helpful for other areas such as depression? Great question. Um, yes, patients never want to work on their eating disorder. They won't like it. Like they'll come to me because it's like impairing their life, but they don't actually want to get rid of it most of the time. I think. I could probably count on one hand the number of patients who are like, I fucking hate it, get it out, I don't want it anymore, it's ruining my life. And usually they come around to it at some point, but upon like initial treatment, nobody's ready. Essentially, life is just unmanageable. They'll come in because they feel anxious or um, because someone in their life recommended it or people, you know, said something, I don't know. They'll come in for other reasons. They don't usually want to get rid of it yet they might admit that they have you know I'm I'm just very particular or oh you know I just you know sometimes I just like to I enjoy food you know they'll have all these like eating disorder based excuses um because it's hard to admit there's a lot of shame blame and embarrassment that goes along with having an eating disorder and no one wants to really get rid of it because like I said earlier it serves a purpose right it's not just a a, a A thing that we're doing because we want to look a certain way or because we just really love food that has actually nothing to do with it. Eating disorder serves a purpose to numb out from something that we're not prepared to feel or cope with. And therefore, it's completely okay. I would just work on your depression if I was your therapist. I'd be fully 100% comfortable with that because the depression might be, surprise, surprise, getting closer to the root of the need for your eating disorder, right? in my mind, I always see an eating disorder as a coping skill. And I'm always looking for the reason that it was born. Why did this eating disorder start? Sure, people can be like, oh, you know, I never thought of using eating disorder until I saw this person or watched this documentary or whatever. And I'm here to tell you, you don't like, quote unquote, catch it like that. But we can be looking for a coping skill because we don't have any. No one taught us how. We don't have any healthy ways to manage. And so we're always looking into our environment for other things. And we're like, oh, I'll do that one. You know, I should uh, focus more on my health anyways. We'll make some lie to ourselves, right? And we start engaging in it. But it's there for a reason. The reason that I've been looking for that coping skill is because I have a reason that I need to cope. And depression might be part of that. I've had a lot of patients who will experience depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms and use their eating sort of numb out from that. Now, yes, that depression or anxiety may come from another place, like, like I said, trauma or, um, you know, attachment issues, which usually kind of is also part of trauma. Um, but it could be, you know, this sense of lack of control in our life, because maybe we have adjustment disorder, because a lot of things have changed recently. There could be all sorts of different reasons. But yes, to answer your question, I would completely be fine treating the depression first because not everybody's ready to get rid of their eating disorder. And I would see it as another way kind of in to figure out what purpose your eating disorder serves. So that then, you know, as we move forward, we can work on healing that. And in essence, without maybe even acknowledging the eating disorder head on, we might be able to work through some of the reasons it's there in the first place. I hope that that's clear and makes sense. So, yes, I would be fine with that and I wouldn't refer you out. Uh, no one's ready to work on their eating disorder right away. It's very, I like I said, I can count on one hand. Let's move on to question number two. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Now, question number two says, hey, Katie, can you talk about child sexual abuse when both the victim and the abuser are the same age? I started therapy after being diagnosed with a number of issues, OCD since early childhood, depression, chronic anxiety that gets worse around people, fearful, avoidant attachment and fear of intimacy. And I'm trying to understand what is causing them. I asked the question because I'm struggling with whether or not a particular experience I had as a child is worth bringing up in session. In this case, the quote-unquote abuser's actions did not seem to be simple, playful behavior because he waited until we were out of sight and his actions were specific, for lack of a better word. He also didn't intend to cause harm because he couldn't possibly have known what he was doing because he was only six and was likely mimicking someone else's behavior that he had seen. To add to this, although he acted without consent, it was not done in a threatening or violent manner um, and was over the clothing. It doesn't have to be threatening or violent, by the way. Is this considered abuse? Yes, it is. During the incident, it was very uncomfortable, Uncomfortable, but I didn't understand why, and I just froze until he stopped. Looking back, it really doesn't seem like a big deal, and I'm struggling to know whether or not it affected me at all because I really didn't have much of an emotional response upon recalling the event, and I even forgot about it for a while. I experienced a couple of events like this that were stressful enough to trigger a fight flight, but looking back, they seem too insignificant to warrant the level of distress I've been experiencing for so long. Do you think these are worth bringing up or could there be another explanation for my diagnosis? If these, if, or diagnoses, sorry, if those events are connected, would that change anything about my diagnosis, my diagnoses or the treatment process? I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Thank you. This is a really great question. and, And there's a lot to talk about here. Now, first of all, um, I want to just remind everybody that child on child sexual abuse, it's not about the age of the person or if they were bigger or smaller than us. The, what gives them power is their knowledge of sex and sexual acts. And that's what makes the, the power dynamic off and makes us the victim and then the perpetrator along with their behavior, obviously. Now, yes, I would bring this up with your therapist because the thing that we often forget and I know I've said this before, but I feel like it's something that just needs to be repeated over and over until we hear it is that even when we look back on things as an adult, right? I can look back on events that transpired for me as a child. And as an adult, I can recognize them. I'm seeing them from adult eyes, right? I'm looking back and thinking that wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't that scary or they weren't that whatever, but we forget what it was like to be that age. And so I encourage you first of all tell your therapist but just consider how how you thought and what it was like at that age i don't know if you'll be able to tap into that but maybe get a photo of yourself around that age it's kind of important that we get back in that mindset to understand our response because it's hard for us as an adult to remember how little resources we had right we don't have any money of our own and most of our choices are kind of made for us, right? We can't just leave. or And often if we tell someone we're afraid of what might happen or, you know, just consider your thought process at the time and, and where you were at and like how you were uncomfortable and you didn't really understand what was happening. Like all of that's very important. Um, and the fact that you froze and it's still, it's abuse, but I want you to at least think about it that way. So you can, or think about it from that perspective of you as a younger you, at that time, because I think that will allow you a little more, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but I guess just acceptance of what happened and and why it's affecting you. Now, do I know if this is exactly why you have these diagnoses? No. But I think it's important to bring up with your therapist and talk about it and be honest about where you were at and how you were thinking and what it was like being that age. I think all of that is very important because um that might give you like shed more light on on the, the reason that you feel the way you feel and the things you're struggling with are the things that you're struggling with. And I think it will just also fill in a more fuller picture with your therapist of what you've been through. And so we can find out if those things are connected through talking it out. We don't have to look back on events and automatically know that they're traumatizing or feel completely overwhelmed, go into fight, flight, freeze in order for them to be traumatizing at the time and for them to affect us later in life. Does that make sense? I hope so. Um, Okay. And it says, and if those events are connected, would that change anything about my diagnoses or my treatment process? So the diagnoses were OCD, depression, chronic anxiety. We might add in PTSD and that might account for your depression or anxiety, but it sounds like you might have social anxiety. So anyways, but PTSD might be added and I think that maybe the treatment process then might be more focused on trauma versus maybe, I don't know what you're doing now, but probably cognitive behavioral stuff like CBT type treatment. Um, so again, that's the reason why we would want to bring it up with our therapist to assess and let them talk with us about it and to decide what we, what we think and then move forward from there. Okay. I hope that's helpful. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, Hey, Katie, my therapist diagnosed me with depression, but I'm struggling to accept it. That's okay. That's very normal. And it's also your diagnosis. So you don't always have to accept it right away. I know I probably have an anxiety disorder and possibly a personality disorder, or even something like ADHD. But when all she ever lands on is depression, it offends me. My pain is valid. Situations in my past led to me feeling this way while present day circumstances and inescapable stressors or toxicity keep me there. I don't see how taking a pill is the answer to that. And it feels like I'm being told that I have a disease when, hello, I've just been hurt and let down by people for years. And I'm willing to bet symptoms from what are likely other diagnoses affect me as long as they're not being treated, creating this illusion of depression. I guess my question is, why am I so offended by this diagnosis? You just told me why, and you have every right to feel offended because it is. You don't feel like it encapsulates all that you're experiencing and what you're struggling with right now. And my encouragement to you is to bring this up with your therapist, um, because taking a pill is never the full answer. Taking medication can be incredibly helpful, and in conjunction with therapy, it gives the best results. Research article after research article. If you want to do your own research on that, I encourage you to do so. It's always the case therapy plus medication not medication alone is gives people the best outcomes. So, let your therapist know that you don't feel like depression is fully correct. You can be like, "Yeah, I know I have some depressive symptoms, but I also feel anxious a lot and know that depression and anxiety are like cousins." And they can kind of hang out together where depression will get bad and our anxiety will get better and then anxiety will get bad, depression will get better. And sometimes when we're really lucky, I'm being facetious, this is like me being a satirical, they'll happen at the same time, we'll feel like extreme irritability and depression simultaneously, which is actually very dangerous when like uh, we can have like a lot of... Uh, suicidal thoughts and things like that so if that's happening for you let your therapist know but just express that this doesn't seem to fit that you feel like it's only a part of what you're going through and i think it's even fair to just say that it you've kind of find this diagnosis i mean you could use the term offended but what i think it is is like minimizing of of your of the full or maybe simplification of what you're going through because maybe your therapist just doesn't know all the stuff that you're, is happening for you i don't know how long you've been seeing them but it's normal to not always accept a diagnosis, which is why I think a conversation should be had between therapist and patient or a psychiatrist and patient about a new diagnosis where you can ask questions. You can second guess it. I always encourage my patients, I'm like, hey, go watch an older video of mine or read this or look this up or I'll copy some pages out of a book of mine. Let me know if you think that fits. That's what I'm thinking. I'd love to talk to you about it next week. And then we can have a conversation where we agree on a diagnosis. And yes, I still have patients who sometimes don't. Even when the diagnosis is very clear, but I give them time to come around to it at their own pace, and it's fair for you to speak up and say that this feels kind of minimizing or simplifying of what I'm going through, and it's, it's hurtful, and I don't, I don't agree with it fully. And you know, that's where the conversation should start. Okay. Now, there was a comment on this said to add to this, since a lot of disorders can have overlapping symptoms, correct? How do you make an accurate diagnosis? For instance, if a client presents with symptoms that would qualify them for multiple different diagnoses, how do you figure out which one is the correct one? Would you just diagnose them with all of them? No. Or would you find a way to eliminate some of them and only diagnose them with one or two? I was diagnosed with depression, generalized anxiety disorder, and panic disorder, but I also quite I also qualify for OCD, social anxiety disorder, avoidant personality, and attachment issues. How do I interpret my symptoms in order to figure out which diagnoses to disregard? That's why seeing a professional is really important because we're taught in school what is known as differential diagnosis, which is what you're talking about. Okay, we think it could be these, let's say, 10 diagnoses or five diagnoses. Which ones are correct? And essentially what it is is in my notes, I'd write down, let's say, I think you might have generalized anxiety disorder or depression or OCD. So I write those down as possibilities. And then I just start tracking symptoms. And I start asking you questions specific to the symptoms of, let's say, OCD, where I'm like, do you, you know, do you ever feel like you have to do that because you're worried something bad is going to happen? If you're like, no, I'm like, oh, well, it's not OCD. <laughs> Crash that out, you know, or, you know, do you enjoy the things you used to enjoy? And if you're like, well, yeah, I do, but it just makes me feel anxious. So like, I don't want to do them because then I feel worse. And I'm like, oh, so it's not really depression so much as more anxiety driven, right? So that would be how I would whittle it down is symptom by symptom, experience by experience. And by asking you specific questions, it would get me to that answer. Now, it's not always whittled down to one diagnosis. Like you said, it might be two or more, but that's how it starts. As I start by writing down, you know, the the diagnoses that could fit, And then as we pick apart your symptoms and have you track your mood and things like that, then we start narrowing and crossing things off until we, you know, make our way to something that I think could be correct. And that's when I have a conversation with you about it. Or if I'm having trouble, if I think there might be, you know, two or three, I might say to you, you know, these are some of the diagnoses that I feel like might fit. Let's talk it through. I want to hear from you what your perspective is. So that's how we figure it out. And so that, and that's why it's really important that we see a professional to get properly diagnosed because I know I've talked about this in the past and I have a video, an old video about it, but self-diagnosing is helpful partially in the way that it can help us find the right treatment. And it can ensure that we ask the right questions and and speak up about certain things and even tell our therapist or whoever, we're, psychologist, counselor, whoever we're seeing, hey, I think it might be this, right? That's really helpful. But in the end, you know, it's our perspective with the professional's experience that can uh, render us a, the, a proper diagnosis and treatment. And so, we don't need to diagnose ourselves ourselves fully. We just need to have an idea of what we're looking at and then tell our therapist or counselor or psychologist that that we think that and figure it out together. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, Hi, Katie. What are possible therapy outcomes for those of us who can't remember our trauma? Are there ways to support the recovery of memories? I can't remember my first 20 years of life. And to be honest and truthful, I can't imagine being able to heal completely if I don't know what happened in my childhood and adolescence, thank you so much for your help. Greetings from Europe. Of course. Okay. This is a great question. And I have quite a few thoughts on it. Now, number one is photos, videos, uh, other family members that are safe or at least okay to talk to are going to be resources and can be ways that we can recall more. Cause you have a whole swath, right? Your first 20 years of life, there's a huge chunk of time. Is there a cousin, a friend, a neighbor, a family member, a, a, I don't know, a, a kid that we knew at school can reach out to on Facebook or Instagram or is there are there people we can talk to? Can we get photos of ourselves from that time or videos of ourselves from a younger time? That's gonna be helpful in piecing things together because sometimes not all the time, but sometimes those repressed memories will pop back up with just a little boop, a little flag of an old memory. And all of a sudden it's and everybody experiences this. let's talk non-trauma memories. You know, when you, you reconnect with someone from your past, or let's say like even my brother, if I'm talking to Nick, all of a sudden, I haven't talked to him in a while about something. And he's like, oh my God, do you remember that time that our cousin Brandy watched it? Like he could mention an old memory. And I'm like, oh my God, yeah, we bought those double, this is a true story. And she took us to the store and we got those double stuff Oreos, which were my favorite. And we sat in his room and we played Super Mario Kart. I remember it like so vividly now, but I, if he hadn't have said that, it might not have come up for me. Do you know what I mean? And so that can sometimes assist. And if you have someone who can recall little snippets for you, or you have photos or videos, that can sometimes trigger memory recall if we can't do it on our own. Now, working in therapy can help somewhat because if we have no memory, usually we work with like little snippets and little clips, boop, 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 and we try to put them on a trauma timeline. If your timeline is blank, I find that that's you know the best way to try to access it or at least like I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but like initiate memory recall. Okay. However, the second part of this is that I want you to know that trauma treatment is really focused on helping you live a better life today. I know I talk all the time about like how we have to work through the past and talk through the past. And for some we do, but we know that talk therapy in that form only works for about 40% of people. And some people have such you know, splotchy memory because of dissociation and trauma that we aren't able to recall. And I'd asked my friend Alexa, I I think it's in one of our videos, but it might have just been a conversation I had with her where I was like, can we overcome trauma if we don't have memory of it? And she's like, of course you can, because you're working on the symptoms and how it affects you. And if you feel triggered and overwhelmed, if we can identify a trigger we can find ways to cope. We can find ways to soothe our system and therefore lessening our trauma response. Ta-da! And I know that obviously is a lot of hard work in there and that little ta-da, but that means that even if there are no memories to recall, that we can in fact heal and recover from our trauma. Okay. So hang in there and hopefully some of those ways to, to I don't know, bring forth any memory bits that might be there. Hopefully that helps initiate that as well. Now, there was a comment on this that said, a side note to memories, the ability to remember memories and conversations with people. Um, Can your mental health cause this? I try hard to remember uh, those things for some reason, but I can't, and I haven't had any head trauma. Lastly, can your brain make up memories? I know I wasn't sexually abused by my father, but for some reason, my brain popped up an image of that, and it frightens me. But also, can it not be real? Okay, so um, your mental health can affect your ability to recall and um, our memories because of things like uh, psychosis or uh, dissociation. Like I said, when we have um, a dissociative disorder, or we dissociate when something uh, stressful happens to us. It's hard for our brain to recall memories. When we're in a psychotic episode, it can be also hard for our brain to you know, store memory. And so therefore, it can be hard for us to recall it correctly later on, if at all. Um, but when it comes to they said any head trauma, when it comes to what you know, what's known as TBI or traumatic brain injury, meaning like you had a concussion or something like that. I'm not a neurologist, so I don't want to overstep, but I know that that can 100% affect short and long-term memory. Um, And if you have had a head trauma, it's really important that you see a neurologist and you get checked out. You know, I think you have to get like a CAT scan and all sorts of things to see maybe an MRI. I forget. I had a patient, this is years and years ago, I don't remember, because she came to me having already done all that stuff. Um, But TBI can also, as a side note, cause us to be really irritable. Um, We can lash out because if if your prefrontal cortex, if your frontal lobe gets whacked into your skull, we know... based on what that's responsible for, I've talked about this in the past, that it's almost like the it's part of like our personality, and our organized thought. And it's kind of just what makes us us a lot of that resides here. So if that's been walked into our skull, there can be damage to that. And it can change how we interact with people, we can, um, you know, be short tempered and irritable, we can uh, struggle with forming full sentences or having organized thought or planning things, you know, If there's damage to any part of our brain, we can feel that effect in our life. So get that checked out, please. Um, And then finally, the last little portion said, can your brain make up memories? You can have what's known as intrusive thoughts, meaning uh, I could be driving along and think like, oh, I could just drive off this bridge or I could just run over that person, right? And they're usually violent or sexual in nature, intrusive thoughts are. Not always, but most of the time. And those aren't I know that's not a memory, but sometimes people can be like, "But that's who I am," and I maybe I've done something like that before. So that that's very common. We can have these kind of impulsive, not you know what they call ego dystonic, meaning it doesn't feel good to us, type of memories. Um, but when it comes to, or not memories, uh, thoughts. Sorry, but when it comes to our brain making up memories, unless someone else has told us, like maybe we have like a narcissist in our family and they like gaslit us to believe that you know, that's not how it happened. It happened this other way. We can try to imagine that other way happening. And that would essentially be our brain making up memories. But unless someone's put it together for us, it's really unlikely that our brain would make up memories. Now, obviously, like I said, I'm not a neurologist. So there could be other explanations if we've had a brain injury for why that might happen. But to my knowledge, we we do not make up memories. Okay. Another comment says, hi, Katie, on the trauma memory topic, I was wondering if trauma memories from childhood that do resurface can be repressed again after starting to work on them. 100%. I don't seem to remember it um, at times. Yeah, I don't seem to remember it at times at all, even if I try like in session and other times as if I zone out and it plays off as if I'm right there again. Also happens in session sometimes. Is this how memory works sometimes or does it happen subconsciously or is it consciously as a protective mechanism of some sort? I'm not even sure. Your input would be so much appreciated. Thank you so much for all that you do. Of course. Yes. Our brain... Because our nervous system can get overwhelmed, right? That fight, flight, freeze, it can push us into that if we become overwhelmed. It can go in and out of allowing us to process something like this. And so it is very normal for the memories to kind of come and go. I might even call what you're experiencing a flashback because it sounds like they'll be there, like, like you're there again. Um, that sounds flashbacky to me. And those can kind of come and go depending on whether we're triggered or if we're more vulnerable to those types of things, meaning we haven't really slept well, or maybe we're stressed out, or maybe we haven't eaten in a while, you know, all those things can make us more vulnerable to kind of like our neurological impulses. And so that can definitely happen, especially when it comes to trauma memories. Now, regular memories, I don't, they don't tend to do that. Regular memories don't flash back, but we can have these aha moments like, oh my God, do you remember that? And then we just like kind of play it out and we move on. And so that's a little bit different than feeling like we're back there. And this to me sounds like a flashback. And so I think you've been triggered. And yes, that's how trauma memory works sometimes. And also the fact that it can be repressed again, I think is your brain's way of protecting you from it off and on because it knows how overwhelming it can be to your system. Does that make sense? Like if it allows it to keep going, and keep playing out, it could be re-traumatizing to you. And so it just wants to protect you from that. Now, there was another comment on this as as another add-on. How do you help your clients figure out if they are being affected by an event from their childhood, given that certain defense mechanisms like repression and intellectualization can cause us to feel numb and emotionally detached? In other words, is it possible to be affected by by childhood trauma, yet have no emotional response upon recalling the traumatic memories? Or is that a sign that there was no trauma after all? Um, Great question. Now, yes, you can be affected by childhood trauma and not have an emotional response. And it's mainly due to your, like you said, like your defense mechanisms, your way of coping. I had a patient, God, this has got to be like 15 years ago now, I guess maybe like 12. Anyway, I had a patient who was sexually abused as a child. and could recall it all without any emotional response, yet still had a swath of PTSD symptoms that would happen like in his regular life but he could tell me about it easily no problem and it was because he was like disconnected from the story he would tell it to me almost exactly the same every time and I'd mentioned it a few times to him I was like well let how about let's start here and he'd be like no no no, I want to start back it started the same place every time and do it over and over it was like he'd recited it so many times that it became like not real anymore not attached not part of what happened to him um So there can be a lot of different reasons that we don't have an emotional response when recalling the traumatic memories. The true test of whether or not it's traumatizing and affecting us is if we have symptoms that are affecting us in our life. Like, are we having flashbacks? Are we feeling uh, dissociated, overwhelmed? Are we easily triggered? Do we feel hypervigilant? Do we avoid certain scenarios, people, smells, foods, things that remind us of that time? Those are all the symptoms of PTSD. And also, okay, so that's that's that. So we're looking for that more so than the emotional response when talking about it. That emotional response can be a gauge for some of us to tell whether or not we need to continue processing what happened or not. But everybody's different. You know, it's not one size fits all. And finally, I want you to know that there can be trauma and we can be traumatized, but not all of us develop PTSD as a result. Does that make sense? Because trauma can happen to us. And then based on our resiliency and our ability to cope, we might be able to manage it before it turns into PTSD, or we might not be able to. And that's just person to person, situation to situation. So it is possible that there was trauma, but we don't have PTSD. I don't really know. You'd have to talk with your therapist again, just because everybody's different and there's no right or wrong answer. There's no right or wrong way to feel. Um, but being curious and not judgmental about it will hopefully give you the answer you're looking for. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. And this question says, hi, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, I'm curious about the treatment and levels of care with eating disorders. What are the different levels of care? And at what point is each level necessary? What does treatment look like for each one? Thank you. Okay. Great question. And if anybody's looking for information about levels of treatment as a whole, not just for eating disorders, but for mental illnesses as a whole, I talk about it at length in a chapter in my first book, Are You Okay? And I talk about it when it comes to trauma treatment, not necessarily levels, but different types in my book, *Traumatized*, So you can hop you know, to your local library and grab those books, and that can walk you through if you need more information, more specific information. Now, when it comes to eating disorders, the the first level will go from least uh, time consuming to most time consuming or like le- le- like less severe sorry I stuttered there less severe to like most severe now the first level of the less the least amount of care. Would be what is known as outpatient. And that's what would happen if you came to see me for an hour, or maybe we had two sessions a week. And then you go about your life. Like you come in to see me. That's why it's called outpatient. It's just like going to any doctor or any appointment. You go out and you live your life after the fact. And you just come in for your appointments every week, okay? Or every other week or whatever your situation is. If that's not enough, obviously we can increase our sessions. That would still be considered outpatient. But then we would move into what is known as intensive outpatient, IOP, intensive outpatient. And that is when you can go in for like a day program. Like you can go for like a couple of hours. Let's say it's like three or four hours a day. You have therapy with your therapist. You have group therapy. You have uh, support around food. Like one of the places I used to work at and in California had IOP and then what I'll talk about later, which is PHP. In the IOP, I think it, you could go from three days to week three days a week to six days a week. And it was like from three hours to six hours a day. So there's all this range of how intensive that outpatient care needs to be. From that, so let's say we're going to the day, and that means that we go and we sleep at home, and then we go back to our program. You know, we don't live there. Then we move into an even more intensive, which is known as PHP or partial hospitalization program. So PHP. And that is when we pretty much live at the treatment center. And this is um, usually anywhere from like 30 days. It's usually in 30-day increments because that's just what insurance in the States here covers. But for if you're in another country, it might be different, but they usually do these 30-day kind of stays. And then you can get extended depending on how much care you need and how you're doing, if you're progressing enough, but you're still sick enough for that level of care. And this means you don't go to work or school, you don't go home, you live there, you stay there. And the places that I worked at are like homes that have been converted into treatment centers and there's always staff there 24-7, but you're in like a home setting and it's, you know, a therapeutic home setting. So there's groups all day, there's events, there's outings, so you can eat in public and learn how to do that. Um, you have your therapy, your dietitian, your psychiatrist, everybody comes there and you just see them while you're there. Um, and if you need, I mean, I used to do the runs sometimes for people when they need to go to the dentist or have any other like more intensive work done that is still taken care of when you're there, but we just end up driving you and, and waiting and taking you back. And then the final level, the highest level of care is, is hospitalization. And that is, I mean, I've only had this happen with a few patients over the years, but this is when we need, especially with eating disorders, we need either um, to check if our heart is working at a patient who had to wear a heart monitor for a long time. Maybe we need to be tube fed. Maybe, you know, we need to become medically stable, meaning we can like walk around and participate in treatment. And we have to get to that level before we can go to PHP. So, hospitalization, in in my honest opinion, is never really therapeutic. There's one great program used to be in Denver, Colorado, but I've heard recently that it's just not as good as it used to be. I heard from a couple of colleagues of mine over the past like four years that it's kind of gone downhill. But There used to be a great hospitalization program there, Um, but by and large, it's just medical model, try to get you stabilized so that you can go to another level of care, and so it's more just like hospital treatment, but they call it hospitalization, and that's really how those work, and The way to know when each level is necessary, I mean, obviously the hospitalization is going to be necessary if we like are passing out and we can't stand or our heart is racing or, you know, if we have other medical complications, that's when hospital, you just jump right to hospitalization. But when it comes to the other levels and therapeutic treatment, is it enough? That's always the question. So if you're seeing me once a week and you're still getting worse, that means that's not enough we need to go up to two times a week. And then we probably need to look at a PHP if that's still not enough. If the PHP still isn't enough, we need to look at, or IOP, I mean, and then IOP is not enough. We go to PHP and PHP to, you know, so that's kind of how it works is, are we getting enough support? Are we able to participate in therapy? And even if it's hard, and I know, you know, recovery is not like A to B to C, we're good. Yay. Are we still making some progress even if it's just the emotional component being able to like manage and stay present are we able to do that um and so that's really how we know each level is necessary is like how are we doing is it enough support for us to slowly make that progress i hope that's clear cuz i know it can be kind of complicated okay let's move on to question number 6 and it says hi katie i feel like i'm doing emdr wrong Okay. I've been in therapy for over two years, ever since discovering that my husband was having a year long affair with my best friend. I'm so sorry. He is now my ex-husband, by the way. And I realized that my friend was never actually a friend, obviously, what a dickwad. I've been doing my anxiety and depression and coping skills with my therapist, but she's also an EMDR therapist. And recently we started doing that a bit. I feel like I'm doing something wrong with EMDR. And I said this to my therapist and she said that I'm not doing anything wrong, that clinically everything I'm doing is right. My issue is that I'm having a hard time finding negative cognitions about myself regarding the affair. My thoughts are all about what horrible people they are and or the events that we focused on were not upsetting to me at the time, but are disturbing now that I know that they occurred during the affair. Like when I think about all the times I sat in my family room with my friend, having vulnerable and intimate conversations about my marriage. And I thought she was so, oh, I thought she was super supportive. God, what an asshole but in reality, she was already having sex with him in hotel rooms. There's a special place in hell for people like that. Also, I don't know what to focus or think about during the sessions. When my therapist has me picture events in my head or focus on how my body feels, my mind just wanders. I think about and rehearse what I'm going to say to her. I may start thinking about a different event or even about other things completely, like my grocery list. Then I'll try and focus on what I'm supposed to be thinking about, which usually involves me repeating over and over in my head, focus on this, focus on this. On a positive note, I usually feel very relaxed after the sessions, likely because I'm focusing so much on breathing and relaxing. She has me hold buzzing paddles during the sessions and my eyes are closed. And in case people are wondering, they are unfortunately still together. Um, okay. First of all, I'm so sorry you're dealing with this and I'm glad you're getting help. Thank God your ex-husband and ex-friend that was never a friend are such assholes. Okay. Um, I have a thought. And I don't know if this is probably why your therapist said that you're doing everything right and you're fine because that's what my brain goes to as well. But I'm going to give you a little context and hopefully that helps you maybe if I'm on the right track, maybe understand what's happening more. I think your defense mechanisms are like, and instead of focusing on how we feel and what's going on with us, we distract by projecting and focusing only on the other people and the other people involved. And no one would disagree with you that they're assholes and, you know, deserve each other because they're both fucking trash monsters. But we don't have to focus on them anymore. We get to focus on us. And I think you're having a hard time doing that because I would assume, now I'm making these huge assumptions, so I could be completely incorrect and you can be like, Katie, shut the fuck up, you're way off. But just hear me out. I assume and have, you know, these thoughts that maybe you are You're like me, maybe you're a little people pleaser, or we don't really get that much attention ourselves. We have a tough time taking attention. Um, We like to fix other people, or you know, we're a super duper helper because it seems like that's why you have a tough time focusing inward. Now, I might be wrong, and that might not be correct, but I have a feeling that's why your EMDR therapist like you're doing everything right. It's just going to take some time for you to be able to turn it inward. And it's not about you having the right things to say or being able to say anything. You could even just say, I can't, I have a tough time tapping into what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking about me. And that might be worth journaling about. Like, what is it about focusing on myself that is so difficult? And I'll give you some examples because I we have a lot of people in our community, have a lot of patients. Even my friends over the years have talked about this. It can be really hard to live inside our own heads sometimes. That's why uh, my patients who are going through tough times will really struggle with with quiet, just like sitting in the quiet. Oh, painful. That's why meditation and breathing can be like, are you fucking serious? That's not going to work for me because being alone with myself is painful. And that might be how you feel. It might be that you know. Tapping in with yourself, being alone with yourself is something that you can't even do right now because it just feels so, and it's easier to look out and be like, look at those jerk wads. And I was cheated on in high school slash college by a a long-term boyfriend. And I have to be honest, it was much easier for me to look out at them and be like, they're such dirtbags and I hate them because it hurt me versus actually acknowledge why it hurt me and And my role in it, which I know you're thinking like, but Katie, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not saying you did anything wrong. I'm saying, I'm just speaking from personal experience, that I knew something was off and I felt him pulling away. And I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't know how to address it. And then I also had an opportunity to leave and I didn't. And so even though I didn't I didn't cause, I'm not saying you cause us, we, we didn't cause anybody to cheat. I'm just saying that there is, we have our own role in it. And that's what you're having a tough time connecting with because I don't know. Why? Why do you think you're having a tough time connecting? Is it hard to be inside of yourself? Is it hard to acknowledge that hurt, that pain? Is it hard to be vulnerable because that makes us, or is it hard to not be angry because not being angry makes us feel vulnerable and we're not comfortable with that yet? Or, you know, do we have some of our own guilt and blame like I did where I'm like, oh, I guess I did know and I should have done, you know, like, I don't know, but consider that those are just where my thoughts go. And those are the things that I think about because I don't think you're doing anything wrong. I think it's just hard for you to find these like negative cognitions about yourself and these, these thoughts because you're not in yourself right now. It's like hard for you to even talk to her and find out how she's feeling. That might be a little scary. You might feel really fragile and to acknowledge that hurt and that betrayal can be overwhelming sometimes. Yeah, I don't know if I'm ringing true. I might be wrong. If not, you know, let me know. I'm happy to follow up. But that's where my brain goes is that it's really hard. And so letting that's why your therapist like you're doing everything right. But just be curious about that, like why it is hard to connect and, and what you think is holding you back. And if any of this rings true, you know, run with it. Let your therapist know, hey, I think it might be this, that, or the other. Um, and know that it's okay to struggle because no one should feel betrayed like that. And it can be really hard to open ourselves up even in therapy. Um, that's why I love the term puffer fish. My therapist had said it to me, you're puffer fishing, Katie. And it's protective, right? We we have to protect ourselves sometimes. You're puffer fishing, <laughs> And you don't want anybody to get close, even you. You don't even want you close to you. Um, we can just want to isolate and kind of shut down. And so we have to figure out how how to tap back in and know that it's okay. We have to find ways to self soothe, probably, so we can pull those spines in. But it takes time, and it's okay. Give yourself that time, okay? Now there was a comment on this that says hugs. I've also been dealing with betrayal. And trauma, and it's so hard. I'm so sorry. I also get very distracted in sessions. How often is this something that we should bring up every time it happens? Because I think I'd have a whole session with me just saying that I don't know. Oh, saying that, and I don't know that that would actually change my getting distracted. Good question. Um, bring it up as a whole once, and then you know every few sessions. If it's not getting better, you need to let your therapist know. And I would even my honest. Like my best advice would be when you bring it up and you tell your therapist, hey, I get distracted, it's hard for me to focus, say that to them and say, can you check in with me every couple sessions and make sure I, we know how this is going? Because I have a, I have like the urge to shut down and not tell you. So then they put it on the therapist to, to check in. Because we have all sorts of notes about check-ins on our in our notepads, or at least I do. Um, so put it on them because it's up to us to remember and we should be checking in on something like that. And I would just bring it up once and then tell them to check in and take it from there. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, Katie, you've talked about eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full, but how do you really know when you're hungry and when you're full? I've tried this. And I think that uh, when I'm in a restrictive mindset, I'll lie to myself, of course, and say that I'm not hungry when I actually am. And when I'm in a binging mindset, I'll lie to myself and tell myself I'm hungry when I'm actually not. How do I stop doing this? Okay. My best advice, honestly, is that I think we need to find you an eating disorder therapist or a therapist in general, possibly a dietitian, because I think it might be a little too early in your recovery process to do what's, in, what's called intuitive eating, which is that eating when you're hungry, stopping when you're full. And there's no shame in that intuitive eating takes us a while because we've been so disconnected from our bodies. Like you're saying, when I'm more restrictive, I'm like, I'm not really hungry. And when I want to binge, I'm like, I'm super hungry. But you're like, which is true? Because we don't really know. We haven't been able to tap in and be like, hmm, am I thirsty or am I hungry? I mean, I had a patient for, I feel like a year I always had her, we had these two, and I don't know if this will work for you. It, I actually even use one of them myself personally still, because if I get busy, I'll forget to eat. And so I always check in. So let me give you these tips. I always had her drink a big glass of water, like one of these, and then see if she's still hungry. Because a lot of times when she wanted to binge, she'd actually just be thirsty. I don't know. It's just something that worked. And then the second, and the one that I still use is when she would kind of start to think about food, this would be triggering. And then she'd go into like, the, I'm not hungry thing. And so I always, cause she loved cheese pizza. Now I don't know if this will work for you, but it worked for her and it works for me. If you get really, if you kind of start thinking about food, but you're busy or you're not sure, or it's triggering to even think about food. I, she would always say to herself, if someone offered me a piece of cheese pizza, would I want it? And that would mean she was hungry. She would start like figuring out what she's going to eat because that's the thing about food is it takes a little while to like prepare it so we can't wait till we're starving by the time we eat because then we'll overeat and won't be able to tap in because we're eating too quickly and i do this personally because if i get in a work mode i'll lose track of time and then i'll be hungry and so if i start thinking about food i'll be like if someone gave me a slice of cheese pizza would i be like damn straight yeah then i'm like i gotta get i gotta get up and figure out what to eat right I don't know if that'll help you, but that was helpful for her. And again, just going back to the fact that intuitive eating is very difficult for those of us in recovery. So be patient with yourself. There's no judgment here. We just need to get you some more support so that you can feel okay We can start to acknowledge hunger fullness cues, like learn how to, and it might mean you follow a meal plan for a while. That's why seeing a dietitian can be so incredibly helpful is when we struggle to know hunger fullness, we can struggle to know what we should eat and how much. And so if we just follow a meal plan for a while, that gives us a place to start and gives us a place to know like, hey, I used to eat that and that was enough. Am I full? Is that what fullness feels like? And we slowly let our body teach us again because we've just not, talked to our body in so long, and it's sending all these signals that we're not listening, we're like overriding it all the time to either overeat or undereat. It, it, We have to learn again what that feels like. We have to learn, like, you know, talk about that zero to 10 scale, zero being like, I'm so hungry, I'll eat this table. 10 being like, if I bend over, I'm going to throw up. It takes us a while to relearn all those different cues that come along with those steps. And it might Take us practicing, you know, with a meal plan for months before we're like, ah, that's what a five feels like for me. When I'm like, I should probably start thinking about food, you know. Um, So be patient with yourself and just know that intuitive eating is, you know, way down the line of treatment for a lot of people, and I just don't think we're quite there yet. Now there was a comment on this additionally in intuitive eating is it recommended to eat whenever your body wants? Oh, it is recommended to eat whenever your body wants, but mine never seems to want certain kinds of food, or at least I don't get the feeling of what it wants. And it says, "Edit, I have been eating regularly for about 9 months now and my hunger and fullness cues are pretty much normal now." Maybe you don't like those kinds of foods. That's okay. If you think those are eating eating disorder driven restrictions, meaning like I don't like this one specific food because I have deemed it "quote unquote unhealthy or bad," Um, then I want you to bring that up with your therapist because we'd have to dig into why that food. What is it about that that either grosses us out, makes us think that we don't deserve it, shouldn't have it? Is there judgment around it? What kind of like qualifier do we put to that food? Meaning, is it good, bad, healthy, unhealthy? You know, what is it? There's obviously some kind of judgment we've placed on that food and we have to figure out what that is. So just being curious about those foods will probably give you more answers as to why, but also just know that sometimes we just don't like certain foods. Like I'm not a particularly picky eater, but there Sean is definitely not picky at all, more so than me. And there'll be things that he'll want that I'm like, I'd rather not, you know, he like wants to put capers on everything. And I don't particularly love capers. So, right. But Is that an eating disorder thought? No. Is it something I just don't really like the, the flavor? Yeah, it's a little too salty. I don't love that. So just know that there can be certain foods you don't like, but we just have to be curious about the reason behind it and make sure it's not eating disorder driven. Okay. Just be curious. Remember, curious, not judgmental. Okay. Final question. Question number eight. Sorry, I've got a little itchy pod nose here. Okay. It says, hi, Katie. I've been referred to a psychiatrist and I really don't know what to expect. I got you. I'm quite nervous as the assessor who referred me said they think it may, oh, it might be autism, which I just didn't see coming. I don't know why they would say that up front. Why wouldn't they just let them assess? Well, I I don't know. I don't know what an assessor means. It's like the intake person, because I feel like you should probably see a therapist first and then be referred to a psychiatrist. Anyway. Now I feel conscious about acting a certain way to confirm or reject this. I've been struggling more since the referral, going from feeling hopeless to feeling like a fraud. How do I I avoid acting a certain way and how can I manage in the meantime? Thank you so much. Okay, so just so you know, psychiatrists are very, for anybody out there that's going to go see one, there are some that do have great bedside manner, meaning that they have good people skills. But most do not. And I don't mean this is a put down to psychiatrists out there. I'm not saying psychiatrists aren't people people. I'm just saying that they tend to look at symptoms. They ask you about symptoms. They're very direct. It's a medical model. It's just different than like therapists, which we can be like kind of warm, touchy feely people. Psychiatrists can be kind of cold, straight to the point. And so just be prepared with some of the symptoms that are bothering you. It's not really about, I don't want you to worry about acting any kind of way. I want you to be worried more about talking about the symptoms that are upsetting you, because this is all about you. This is about you getting the treatment that you need and the support that will help you most. So start in your in notes on your phone, because we always bring our phones with us. I find if we write a paper note, we're more apt to accidentally leave it at home or in the car or something like that. Start tracking your symptoms. What symptoms are upsetting to you? Make sure we relay, relay that to the psychiatrist because they're going to ask. And you can just have your phone out and be like, I made a list so that I didn't forget. You just read it off. Then they're going to, you know, they might have you fill out some paperwork and uh, take some questionnaires. If they're going to assess you for autism, for ASD or autism spectrum disorder, I'd assume there's going to be either they'll refer you out to take the assessments or they'll do them in-house. And usually there's one where you just like sit and talk with someone. Now, okay, I do not specialize in ASD, just FYI, but I have had patients get tested for it. I've had members of our community so graciously share their stories and tell me what that was like. So just know that it's some combination of you filling out some questionnaires as best as you can. Again, you don't have to worry about acting in some kind of way. Just answer honestly, that will ensure that you get the proper treatment. There's also a component where they ask you questions verbally and you know have you do certain things. Sometimes they'll um, have you like do some certain puzzles and different things while they observe. I know it feels fucking weird. Assessments are always weird. But all we have to do is just show up and be ourselves in the best kind of way. And you can even tell them, I feel like I'm trying to act or not act a certain way. And we don't even know what, you know, it's very normal when someone's watching you. I mean, just consider like regular life. If I know someone's watching me like grocery shop, I'm going to be real weird. I'm not going to be myself and it's going to feel awkward, but after a little while I'll get in the groove and I'll just start doing what I'm doing. And they don't expect any different. There are a lot of questions within every assessment that are there as kind of like red herrings to tell if someone is lying or making something up or, or trying to fake it. So you don't really have to worry. The test will, will rule that out for you. It will shake it all out. You just have to show up and answer to the best of your ability. I know it makes us nervous, but just try to like maybe repeat this mantra. Be like, I'm getting assessed so I can get proper treatment. I'm getting assessed so I can get proper treatment. Has nothing to do with a certain diagnosis. If we, if we receive this diagnosis, then we can work on it or we can figure that out, but we don't even know that yet. We're getting assessed so we can get proper treatment. That's all. And that's really my advice, but please keep track of your symptoms and Read them from your phone and tell the psychiatrist because that's truly what we're wanting to alleviate and what we're wanting to get help for. And I want to make sure they hear you. Okay. And just remember, they're kind of cold and quick with everybody. It's nothing to do with you. It can just be, it's it's just how psychiatrists usually are. I know that's a bummer, but unfortunately, it's the truth. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful Thursday, wonderful rest of your week and weekend. Take care of yourselves. And I hope you found this interesting and helpful. Your questions are always so, so great and so interesting. And hopefully there was some insight in there for any of you who didn't even ask a question this week. please leave your reviews. Please share this podcast. That really, really helps. And if any of you are wondering where I get the questions, it's over on the community tab of my YouTube channel. You can just go to YouTube, forward slash opinions that don't matter, click community. It'll open it up. And every Sunday I ask for your questions. Okay. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time. Bye.